Good morning, church. I'll add my good morning. It's, uh, it's good to have you here in this place. And uh, for those who are online, watching directly or who watch it sometime maybe during the week, because holiday weekend, there's people probably doing other things this morning who aren't here. And uh, just for those who were here last week, I got my floral shirt out. Um, it's not a very good floral shirt, I guess, from Higgs standard, but um, my good one I gave away 25 years ago to St Binney's. So um, this is the best we've got. I'm sorry. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we want to just come before you now with humble and uh, contrite hearts. We want to be open to understand your word today, in spite of me, that uh, we might have a greater appreciation of what it means to live in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not going to play with my phone, but I'm just going to get my timer out because uh, I don't want to go too long. Um, see, typical me, I can't even control my own phone. I've got a clock there, and that's the main thing. I want to start with asking a question of you and of myself. Do my thoughts and actions glorify God? Does the way I live, does the way I think, the way I speak, does it glorify God? And I think the answer to that question for followers of Jesus, is a very simple one. It's either a yes or a no. I know in life we often try to rationalise and justify our attitudes, our behaviours, but do my thoughts and actions glorify God? I think it is a simple yes or a no. In our series, uh, First Things First, which has just uh, come to a conclusion last week, uh, I started. I, I considered what I might speak about today because uh, Ross gave me a bit of an open slather, and I thought, what connects to that? And I guess what came to mind through prayer and just trying to be open to what God wanted uh, to share today was that to live a life that would glorify God builds on the basic principles of our faith, and it's an experience of living that has eternal consequences. For, like many of you, I grew up in the church. I think I was in church five days old. And at some time in those early years, not at five days old necessarily, I learnt the verse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, like a lot of other verses of Scripture that I learnt over the years, those words can rattle off one's tongue quite easily. The fact is, you and I, we are sinners. And because of our sin, we fall short of God's glory, God's standard. What God would want, the way God would want us to live. But then also we read in Hebrews 1, these words, The Son, Jesus Christ, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided 
purification for sins, for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, majest of the majesty in heaven, of God himself. Because of Christ being the exact representation of God, we can have a personal relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to read now from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm not going to talk about that now. I'm going to talk about this, these couple of verses right at the end, but I wanted to set the scene. So whether you eat or drink or whatever, underline that, whatever you do, do it all, underline that as well, for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Follow my example, just as I follow the example of Christ. Last week, just over a week ago, uh, Jenny and myself went away in our caravan uh, down on the coast. I think everybody was up the coast, I mean. Caloundra, everybody who's anybody was up there. Um, well, we were there anyway. And um, not that we're anybody. But we had two special friends with us for these five particular nights. And they were our grandson, seven-year-old Daniel, who's in first grade, and his sister, our granddaughter, Lucy, who is five and in prep. And it was an interesting observation being with them in this concentrated way, which we do from time to time, with all the other things that go on between the dynamics of a little boy and a little girl who are brother and sister. But being at school, they are learners. And for you teachers here, I'm sure you know, not all your students are learners or keen learners, but that's what happens when children go to school. Hopefully they learn, as we did a long time ago. But what I found so interesting, each morning we'd have a ritual and we did a few things. We'd always finish up at the cafe around the corner from the caravan park because Mima had to get a coffee. The kids knew that. It was interesting because on one morning I went in um, to order the coffees with Daniel. And as we're there waiting, he's looking at the, the walls and the, 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 the pictures on the walls and the, the writing on the wall, the slogans on the wall. And he was sounding out the words. And the next morning, it was Lucy's turn to go and do the ordering, so it went in. And she's doing the same thing, just reading and looking at these words. And, and even the words that were a bit big for them or a bit longer for them or ones they didn't really know, they tried to sound them out. So but what I guess reminded me of is that when, for these little ones, as they go to school, whether they like that or not, as they're learning, they're taking on information that gives them a capacity to be able to relate and to communicate within the world in which we live. Now, if there was Chinese or Japanese or uh, Polish writing on the walls, they would have had no clue. Neither would have I. But for a little seven-year-old or five-year-old Polish child or, or Japanese child, they could try to read these words on the wall. We went to uh, a restaurant one night as well. And here they are. They wanted a menu each, of course. You know, what you want is a seven and a and a five-year-old, and you're always going to go to the kids' sections, and there's always going to be, you know, 
nuggets and chips or, or fish and chips or something like that. But anyway, pizza. So they were trying to read. So this whole idea just reinforced to myself how significant and important that learning is about the development of what we learn, the practice of what we learn. And that is so much like the faith, isn't it? That at, we're all at different stages of our faith journey. Some maybe haven't started as yet who are here or who are watching online. But in the process of learning those basics, those one, two, threes, the ABCs, then we will develop from the milk onto the meat that we never lose sight of the milk. We never lose sight of the basics. And for these little ones in our family, maybe one day they might be doing um, writing theses and, and to be able to do calculus and other trigonometry, other things that are a bit more advanced than what they are now. They couldn't even read those words, let alone spell them or do them. The fact is, though, the process of learning and growth comes because we learn the basics. And coming out of our first things first, and uh, Brendan reminded us a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, from Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be given to you as well. So when we make first things first, when we look at what is foundational about our learning process, then we can move on to and we'll be given and blessed with those things that are a bit more complex that actually feed our lives. Some of you here today or online might enjoy church history. I don't mind church history. And I was uh, having a little um, time with uh, Mike Parker, our chairman of our board, and we went through the same college. I'm a couple of years older than Mike, as you would notice when he gets up here later to do communion. Um, but we did church history as part of our, our studies, part of our program. And uh, Jonathan Edwards was this gentleman's name. And he lived, or was born, uh, in 1703, so nearly 420 years ago, a bit before our time, uh, even Neil's time, okay? But it's a while ago. Jonathan Edwards was, or has been, uh, I guess, acclaimed as, not by himself, but by the people, as one of the greatest preachers, theologians, philosophers, authors of our time. Now, he played a critical role in the Great Awakening of the 1730s and the 1740s. And uh, this revival, Christian revival, swept through England and America during those years. Now, I want you to take note of this young man. He was 17 when he became a Christian. His father was a Puritan. So he, he was taught in the ways of God in a pretty basic and very... Um, Service for the form. At 18, so a year after he, was, he, followed, he made a commitment to Jesus, he was asked to be um, the, uh, the preacher, the minister, at the uh, Wall Street uh, Scottish Presbyterian Church in New York at 18. And from 18 to 19, in those 18 months that he started off his ministry, he wrote 70 Resolutions. Now, I've got, oh, I've got some copies actually out there at the info counter. 
if somebody wants, anybody wants them, they're welcome to. Let me forewarn you, though, they're written in 16th century English. And even for a bloke like me, that doesn't flow easily off my tongue. But the fact is, is this young man, and I, I'm astounded by what he's written at, at such a young age, he had such an awareness of God's word and wanting to live within these resolves every day of his life, and he lived till he was 54 years of age. Let me uh, give you an example of, of one of these resolves. I'll give you the preamble first. The preamble said this. This is what he wrote before he wrote these 70, or in, in introduction to these 70 uh, resolves. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Isn't that powerful? This is an 18-year-old man who's leading a church. And, so, and that's only his preamble before he goes into his 70 resolves. I'm going to read one of you the resolves now, and then I'm going to have Graham's Living Translation that might help you to understand it a bit better. And if I don't help you, I'm sorry. Okay, maybe stick with Jonathan's uh, statement resolve rather than my interpretation of his resolve. And this was uh, resolve number four. And the first four uh, of his 70 were all focusing on God's glory. Resolve four said, Resolve to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Now, that was one of the more understandable ones I thought I'd choose for you. Okay? So Graham's Living Translation would read something like this. To resolve to live every day in every thought and by every action in a manner that would only bring glory to God and do nothing intentionally, if at all possible, that would not bring glory to God. What an amazing resolution. Imagine if we started every morning thinking that, considering that. We have been created to have a relationship with God. It's always been God's plan. But God's glory in itself is not necessarily an easy concept to understand. I've heard it explained with, uh, in relationship to holiness. So I'm going to try to help you if you do need some help today with this. God's holiness. Holiness means to be separate, to be set apart. Therefore, God is in a class all of his own. His infinite perfection, his greatness, his worth has no equal. His holiness demonstrates no weakness or sin. He has a quality of perfection that can't be added to or improved. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's God. Isaiah 6, we read these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth 
is full of his, don't say holiness, don't say that, does it? Full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, God's glory is the expression of his holiness. Let's, let's just consider this. God's glory. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. The way God puts his holiness on display. God's honour, his majesty, his worthiness. Some of you would have heard too, as you read scripture over, the, over time, the, the concept of the Shekinah glory. Now that word is not, Shekinah glory is not in the Bible, but the concept is very clear. Let me just share this with you. Shekinah glory is a visible manifestation of God on earth, whose presence is portrayed through a natural occurrence. The word Shekinah is a Hebrew name meaning dwelling or one who dwells. Shekinah glory means, therefore, um, referring to a divine presence of God, he who dwells among us. This uh, Shekinah glory was most evidently seen in the Old Testament. And uh, there's the account of um, the children of Israel have uh, come out of Egypt and uh, they're on the journey in Exodus and there's this interaction between Moses and God. And the earlier parts of Exodus chapter 3 talk about this relationship that um, Moses had set up a tent outside of where they were staying as they travelled around, all their tents, all the, the people's tents, and this tent was a meeting, the tent of meeting, a place where Moses would go most days and would meet with God. And it said the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance of that tent that Moses would go in, the meeting tent, and as God spoke to Moses. And then we pick up in verse 18. Then Moses said to God, now show me your glory. That's a typical thing you'd expect Moses to do, wouldn't you? Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have, will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face. And live. So the concept of God's glory is his presence and his, and his connection on earth here, though we can't see his face. But that's not the end of the story, which is great. Because we know, as we look at scripture, that we see God through Jesus, don't we? In God's glory, I, I, there was a, a verse in Psalm 19 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I would think that most of us, if not all of us, at some time have been out bush or we've been at the beach and at night time. And what do you do when you're out in the bush or at the beach at night time? There's not much light around. You lay on your back and look up at the heavens, don't you? Don't we all do that? 
Yeah, of course we have. I remember when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I was living in Sydney with my parents before I went to Bible college, and I was doing some studies uh, at Sydney Tech of a, of a night, two or three nights a week for many, many years. I um, wasn't a very smart student. But as I'd travel home, my parents lived on the North Shore there, um, I'd cross over the Harbour Bridge. And there were, it wasn't all the time, but there were significant times in my life that I was stirred up with something going on in my life. I was processing stuff, trying to deal with issues in my life. And for those of you who know Sydney, as you come over the Harbour Bridge, um, going north, Milsons Bay is there, and Luna Park's on one side, and there's the wharf, uh, Milsons Bay Wharf. And, and I'd come off the bridge and go around underneath, and there was this very steep grass embankment that would go from the water up to the, the pylons of the bridge and underneath the bridge. So I wouldn't lay under the bridge, because if I laid on the bridge, I'd be looking at the bridge and watching the cars going over, the trains going over. I'd go to the side, usually not the Luna Park side, the other side, and even though it was light of the city, but I'd look up into the sky, and I found that was a place I could connect with God. Quite amazing. Some people have nice, comfy chairs. Some people have nice views where they meet with God. But back in those days, home was a bit chaotic, so I didn't go home to do that. I'd lay on the grass and look up. And, and it was amazing, that experience for me, as I considered things and processed things, but I felt I could see the glory of God in the beauty of his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Unfortunately, some people don't see this glory because they've been blinded by Satan. In 2 Corinthians, Satan, it says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. The fact is, for many of us, we do see it. We are ones who have had the privilege of, of um, meeting God through Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And our challenge then is in our non-blindedness that we might demonstrate the glory of God, that people might see God's glory in us. How? How do we do that? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 talked about two particular significant statements to the crowd. Firstly, they should be the salt of the earth. And then in verse 16, it talks about they need to be the light. You are the light of the world. And in this concept of the light of the world, I, I, I think it's such a, a true reality for us to understand. In the same way, you are the light of the you are the light. Sorry, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you get that? That by living our lives in doing God's good deeds, the deeds that God wants us to do, so that people might see the glory of God, the glory of our, your Father in heaven. In other words, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, our relationship in our homes with our partners, with our children, with our grandchildren, our, our relationship with our parents, our relationship within the church. Are we doing the good deeds so that God's 
glory would be seen in and through our lives. I guess the reality is that we need to be reminded of is that people are watching us all the time. I heard that years and years ago and I thought, I don't, that's not correct, is it? People aren't watching me all, all the time. But when I started to think about it, I'm always watching people. I'm always observing what people do and how they speak and how they act, how they relate. It's one of those things that I'm just aware of and I'm sure many of you are too. So the fact is that people are watching us. What do they see? What do they see? About 25 years ago, I, I was reading some material and I was really challenged with this same principle that Jonathan Edwards was challenged, but I haven't got so many resolutions. I've one simple little statement. As I said, I'm, I'm not as intelligent a man as he, he was. But in reading some material, I, I, I was considering what statement do I need to have as part of my consideration or my resolve daily? And... Uh, I came across this, this concept, which is very simple. Today, I want to bring pleasure to God with my life. Now, a lot of days I fail dismally. Why? Because of Romans 3.23. I have sinned and fallen short of, of God's glory. But when we have a statement like that, or whatever it might be, that gives us an awareness of God's leading in our life, how it impacts us during the day, how it impacts us the way we relate to other people, the way we drive our cars, the way we, 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 um, we talk to friends, the way we deal with, uh, not that I'm onto Facebook or those sort of things, but the way, the way we do social media these days. But the question then was, what brought me to that focus? And I come across this again a long time ago in the same context of time. I was challenged to live my life with an eternal perspective. Now, by that, I don't mean to be morbid and fearful of life, rather to be realistic and to be hopeful of life. So in this material I was reading of having an eternal perspective, it made me aware of three things or reminded me probably so of three things, not made me aware. The shortness of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. Three very significant factors in the way of our existence, aren't they? And seeing I've clocked up my three score year and ten, so I realise that life is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter now. The certainty of death, and uh, we're exposed to that all the time, aren't we, in our lives? I was just uh, thinking as I was putting these thoughts down, you know, with uh, Charlie, Diane and Deb, and just where they're at now. Five months ago, Charlie was living a healthy life. And he didn't realise that five months later that he'd be so sick and riddled with cancer and he'd be close to being in God's presence. How the fact or the reality of the length or eternity and what that means to us will have an impact upon our life and even the way we approach death. Are you living from an eternal perspective? Let me tell you a story. And I, I know I won't do it justice, but John Piper, 
uh, tells this story. He preached in a sermon um, at Passion, which for those of you who don't know, is a, um, um, a gathering of uh, college students in America. Some 40 or 50,000 attend these Passion uh, weekends or periods of time. Where uh, uh, And Louis Giglio, some of you would have heard his name. He, he sort of began this back in 1997. Back in 2000, though, uh, John Piper was there preaching this sermon. And uh, he was telling the story of two ladies from his church that the church had received notice only three weeks before he preached this sermon who had died in um, Cam um, Cambodia. And one of the ladies' names was Ruby um, Eliason, and uh, she was in her 80s and had been a missionary, a single lady, been a missionary all her life. And the other was Laura Edwards, who was a friend of Ruby's, who was also a member of the church there and who'd been a, um, a doctor, a GP doctor, for all of her life. And she was late 70s. She was younger, okay? But in her younger years there at 78, 79, she decided in her retirement to join uh, Ruby and to go to Cambodia as well and to work with the sick and the poor. They were in a vehicle um, just three weeks before this time, and uh, it had a bad accident, and they both died. And the question then that John Piper put out to this 40,000 18 to 25-year-olds was, he asked the question, is this a tragedy? And the words that I could hear as you watch this bit of video was, no. And he agreed. Then he got out a bit of paper, and it was a cutting from um, the Reader's Digest magazine. And he read this article to them. And it was headed, Start Now, Retire Early. February 1998, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast um, five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Puerto Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And then he, looked, he went quiet and looked at everybody and he said, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And he goes on. Let's read what else he said in this uh, in the video. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get to, to buy it, to take this on. And he said, I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, he said, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells on, in the last chapter of your life before you stand before the creator of the universe and give an account of what you did and you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. How powerful. And John Piper wasn't saying we shouldn't have a nice house or a nice car or good family. Those things are all really important we work hard at. But why are we here? Are we here truly to glorify God. And he finished off 
that section, he, he said, and, and this is a, a quote from, or a short rhyme from C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As I sort of draw my thoughts together, close up, I want to go back to that reading that I shared in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 11. 1. Now, this, this, these verses are in the context from chapter 8 through to chapter 11. I don't take it out of context, I just want to, but I just want to focus a couple of thoughts here. So whether we eat or drink, and that was in regards to the, um, the sacrifices that were made to idols, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So basically what Paul was saying there to the church at Corinth, don't cause anyone to stumble, whether they be those who are outside the church, Jews and Greeks, those who are followers of Jesus, okay, those who are in the church, church of God. Don't do anything that would cause them to stumble. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they may be saved. Wow. And then he goes on in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I have followed the example of Christ. This is so powerful. In 2 Peter, we read these words. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is slow in keeping his, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, Praise the Lord for that. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. My encouragement to you is that we might do everything to shine the light of God's glory into a world of darkness. So I finish with what I asked, the question I had right at the very beginning. Do my thoughts and actions glorify God? I believe if we do that well, that when we meet God face to face, he'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are mindful of our own sinful natures. We are so grateful for your patience with us, your mercy and your grace. Therefore, Father, we don't live defeated, we live victorious. And I pray, Lord, that our lives, as we understand your word even better, as you teach us and instruct us, that we might live our lives in a way that in everything, whatsoever things we, we do, we would seek to do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.